This is a CBC podcast. It is my pleasure to share with you my husband, mon mari, and notre cher ministre du Canada, Pierre Poilievre. Merci beaucoup, Anna. Pierre Poilievre jumped up on center stage in Quebec City Friday night. In a speech that was carried across the country, he was punchy. He was pointed in his attacks, but at times he was also emotional. And I want to thank my own parents. It's because they made the decision to adopt me and work hard in front of a classroom that I now stand proudly in front of this room. Thank you so much, Mom. Thank you, my mother. I'm Catherine Cullen at the Conservative Policy Convention in Quebec City. The Conservatives have a double-digit lead in the polls, and that means that Polyev's vision and the policies that party members are debating at this convention they could become reality in Canada within a few years. Now, we don't know when that election will be, but when it comes, Canadians will have only two options. A common-sense Conservative government that frees hardworking people to earn powerful paychecks that buy affordable food, gas, and homes in safe neighbourhoods, or a reckless coalition of Trudeau and the NDP that punishes your work, takes your money, taxes your food, doubles your housing bill, and unleashes crime and chaos in your neighborhood. This week on The House, we'll talk to Pierre Polyev's top advisor. We'll analyze his pitch to Canadians, and we'll look at what lies between the Conservatives and their hope of forming the next government. First, though, as we walked around the convention, we met people from all over the country who had traveled to be here. We asked them, what kind of policies do they want to see from a Conservative government? Carmen Wilson, and I'm the current candidate of record in scarborough Gilwood. Young people can't afford to buy homes to make um, homes more affordable for uh, Canadians, all Canadians. Um, I have a 28-year-old daughter. She's not moving out anytime soon. I'm an immigrant. I came here in 1976 from Jamaica, and I love this country, but I don't like what's going on right now. My children are Canadians, so I'm here to fight for their rights. I'm here to make sure Canadians live the life that I grew up in this country. I want my children and grandchildren to have that. My name is Lisa Bonang, and I'm from Muscogee Harbour, Nova Scotia. I'm a family physician, so I'm looking at seeing what we can offer in terms of healthcare and how we can improve healthcare across the country, but also looking at making some strong Uh, recommendations and policy on uh, climate change and an environment. I think it's important that we have clear policies so that the electorate of of Canada knows what we stand for and and it's not uh, up to others to define us. I'm Cheryl McGuire and I'm from uh, St. Albert Edmonton EDA. I feel quite strongly actually that freedom is to be first really and foremost with the mandates like to shut everything down. I know that there was a lot of healthcare workers that were quite petrified, I guess, of everything that was going on. I know a few myself. Um, she was a nursing home LPN, and she actually got let go for a few months because she didn't want to take the vaccine. There were others I know that were forced to get the vaccine, and that is just abhorrent. That is abhorrent to a conservative government. I'm Judy Ingram from Tobik Matnaclack in New Brunswick, just outside of Fredericton. One thing, we've got to definitely get rid of the carbon tax. That's a, that's a must. Um, we're dairy farmers, so we find that 
our costs have gone up for transportation, for just getting back and forth to the field and everything, and the actual cost of doing business is much greater than the actual income from it. We really need a change politically, and the only way you're going to get a change is to actively work for the party and change our Prime Minister. So that's what some conservative supporters here in Quebec City would like to see a government under Pierre Polyev do. One key person who is working to make it a reality is Jenny Byrne. She's a longtime conservative strategist. She worked for Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and she is a senior advisor to Pierre Polyev. Thanks for doing this, Jenny. Thank you for inviting me. It has been a year since the leadership win. You have literally now rebranded the party with a new logo. What would you say is the biggest difference between Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party and the other federal leader that you worked with, Stephen Harper? What is Pierre Polyev's Conservative Party all well, about? Well, I, I think you're seeing it now. There's, there has been an evolution in terms of who the Conservative uh, supporter is, who the Conservative uh, voter is. Right now, we are seeing an entirely new group of people and a new demographic of people that are looking at the Conservative Party and they're looking at Pierre Polyev as being the next Prime Minister very seriously. Uh, you're looking at, a, at the Millennials, for example. When Stephen Harper was Prime Minister, they were very young. They were in university. They were in high school. And now they are young families. They're people looking at getting married. They're looking at people wanting to buy a home and uh, they are not uh, able to do it the way that their parents and their grandparents did it. And in the trajectory that you go to high school, you go get a degree, you get a job, you get married and you buy a house and have some kids. And so I think we're just seeing the the change in terms of what the priorities are for Canadians uh, across the country, as well as with voters that have also uh, voted NDP in the past. Northern Ontario, the interior of British Columbia, Southern Ontario, Windsor, for example. Okay, so he's reaching younger people. He's reaching people who didn't necessarily think about the Conservatives before. But what is polyevism? Like, what what does it boil down to for you, this this philosophy, this thing that he's Well, it's common sense. He's... He's a common sense conservative. We we've, we've see it at this convention. That is, that is what he's talking about. He's talking about paychecks for workers. He's talking so, about... I'm going to just interrupt because those are, those are like slogans. Stephen Harper was, I'm sure, a common sense person too. Like, what are we... What is the real... But, no, but, but common sense isn't a slogan. Common sense is the philosophy of, of uh, Pierre Polyev. And it goes down to all of the policies uh, and all of what he speaks about in terms of what's important. So it's, we've talked about the economy. It's, you know... The, the Trudeau Liberals are running inflationary deficits. That's something Pierre spoke about way before anyone else. He was speaking about that in the summer of, of 2000. And, and pundits and, and the Bank of Canada and Liberals were saying it was nuts. And now exactly what he predicted uh, happened. Why? Because it was common sense. Spending too much money means that, in, that inflation is going to go up, meaning interest rates are going to go up. In terms of the tone he brings to politics, there's been a lot of discussion around that. He has described specific politicians as useless, phony, stooges. I was looking at the transcripts. He uses the word incompetent a lot, not just talking about the prime minister, but some ministers. Is that the tone that you think 
Okay, Catherine, then Google what Justin Trudeau has called politicians, or Stephen Gabot, who was out here. Google what he's, what, what, what other politicians have, what other politicians have said. I think what people like about Pierre is he, he tells it as it, as it is. I think, I think a lot of members of the media like to point out what conservatives might, uh, might say, but if you look at over the last two years, even by the own admission, if you look at Bill Marneau, who is Justin Trudeau's uh, former finance minister, he said that Justin Trudeau in his rhetoric was uh, divisive uh, during the height of uh, vaccine mandate and the COVID crisis. I take your point about looking at the rhetoric of other people. This is the candidate you support. Are, are you ultimately saying, like, if I parse what you're saying there, you're saying, you're saying it like it is. This is working? Well, I... I I think that the common sense that Pierre espouses is absolutely working. You can see it uh, in the public polling numbers because there are entirely different groups of people, millennials, people, uh, new Canadians, women. If you look at across the board, uh, Pierre is gaining support among women of all demographics, uh, people that women that supported Justin Trudeau and Jugmeet Singh. And so I think that in terms of what his messaging is, we're seeing it's working. We're seeing a vibrant conservative party. I've been to Many conventions in, in my 20-some years in politics, and this is the the most excited that I have uh, seen people, and that includes after we formed government with Stephen Harper in 2008 and, and the majority in 2011. People are excited, and they cannot wait uh, to get back to the ridings and to start to get ready for the next election, whenever it will be. You've made housing a real priority. Part of that plan involves taking money away from cities if they don't build houses quickly enough. Does that mean that Pierre Polyev is ready to have a fight with cities, essentially? Because some of them are not going to like that, obviously. Well, it's not taking away money. It's just not giving them money. They won't get money. If you don't build homes, then you don't get uh, rewarded. And M- money that they're expecting, though, right? Well, yeah, yeah mo- exactly. Money money that they, they, may, uh, they may expect. But I think it's, it's safe to say that if, if municipalities are gatekeeping in terms of, uh, you know, housing permits, then they should expect that a Polyev government is not going to reward them for that. As a conservative... Do you believe that it's the federal government's job to dictate what cities do and don't do around building? Well, I think if cities are holding up housing developments and they expect the federal government to give them money for infrastructure projects and what have you, then obviously it is. The cities can't have it both ways. They can't say, sorry, this is our decision as to whether homes are being, uh, homes are being built and then say, but please, uh, I need a handout to build infrastructure around developments that aren't being made. Is it a conservative principle, though, or it's just a, like I used the term, common sense? Well, I think it's it's extremely common sense, and I think that Pierre has been speaking about it for months and months and months, and as he's been speaking about it, we have seen at our our rallies, at our events, um, at the feedback that we get from uh, Canadians across, from coast to coast to coast, that, that that message resonates. Let's talk about this policy convention. One of the resolutions at the convention does deal with medical and surgical treatments for people under the age of 18 with gender dysphoria. The the policy uh, resolution proposes banning that treatment. Can a party whose key message is freedom take away families' choices? Well, the, the policy uh, did pass the uh, breakout session here at the convention, which means it will be voted on uh, by the members in the uh, plenary session. So we'll see what the members decide uh, and what uh, transpires during the debate. So there's been some suggestion that this is a culture war issue and, you know, Pierre Polyev's party will or won't want to engage on it. Where do you stand on that? Well, I think we'll see what, what the delegates of the convention decide uh, and vote tomorrow. Are you 
content with the fact that that is up, that it's up for discussion, this issue? Well, I, I think that's the great thing about policy conventions, is that this is an opportunity for members across the country to be able to uh, vote and to speak about the, uh, about the policies that, uh, that, that matter to them. Interestingly, abortion, not uh, a focal point of the policy proposals at this convention. Do you think that the some of the internal battles that have happened in the Conservative Party over that issue are are done? Is that what that signifies? I think that when members across the country went through the extensive gr grassroots policy process, they decided to prioritize the uh, policy amendments uh, that mattered uh, to the people in their ridings and Canadians. So groups like Right Now, Campaign Life Coalition, who want to get more anti-abortion MPs elected, is there a message for them in what we just talked about? Well, as I said, I think that the conservative grassroots members across the country uh, picked the policy resolutions uh, that they felt uh, were important to Canadians across the country. So you're saying if there's a message, it's coming from the grassroots? I think that obviously if there are groups that did not see policies that they were espousing or they wanted, it was evident that it was not the priority for conservatives across the country in every region uh, if it did not make it to the policy convention. It is clear you're looking to kill the carbon tax if you form government. Axe the tax. I've heard that <laughs> more than once. Um, conservatives will say sometimes, hey, look, Joe Biden down in the United States, he's working on climate change without a carbon tax. He, though, is spending trillions of dollars to kickstart green technology. Pierre Polyev has said technology is the route to fight climate change. Absolutely. Are you ready to back that up with the kinds of massive investments that we've seen? So well, far? I think you're going to see as we get closer to the election and as you see as we get closer to uh, platform development that there is going to be specifics that come out on our environment policy, on any uh, climate policy uh, that we have, and it is going to be rooted very much in technology. Pierre has said that very extensively s several times, some something he's spoken about since even before the leadership race and extensively in the leadership race. I think, though, what we're seeing is there is zero evidence across the country that a carbon tax actually leads to lower emissions. In jurisdictions like British Columbia that have had it since 2008, 2009, emissions have, uh, have not gone down. And so the only thing we're seeing is that Canadians across the country, especially in places like, you know, the North and Atlantic Canada, where they, they uh, use a high level of oil uh, to, uh, to heat their homes. The area where I grew up in Fenland Falls, it's high propane, high oil. They've got no choice in terms of other forms of energy. So all we're seeing out of the carbon tax is it is hurting Canadians across the country. But you, you are saying technology is the answer, but he has also said he wants to cut government spending. So I appreciate you're not going to roll out the whole policy here on the House, although you are welcome to. Um, but I'm trying to understand, are you saying technology is going to get a big boost from a pure poly of government if he's to form one? Or I, I am saying that you should wait. Uh, and as we get closer to the election, we will be rolling out policies and we will be rolling out our platform. You talk about being closer to the election. In closing, I do want to ask you, the polls, they're looking pretty good for you folks right now. Uh, you know, the mood here at convention is pretty good. People are feeling unified. They're feeling good. People know you as, as a pundit, as a political strategist. What's the biggest challenge in keeping that going for what could be two more years? Well, as you said, the, po the polls come, the polls go. Um, but, but I think what's exciting is that right now we are seeing a 
rejuvenation of uh, the conservative uh, the conservative party. Uh, I know there were you know a lot of people that weren't happy over the last uh, two years uh, during during the previous leadership race, and I think what we're seeing and what's very exciting for us is the fact that there are entire groups, millennials, women. Uh, new Canadians who are flocking uh, to our movement and want to be part of it and come out in the thousands to see Pierre when he goes out uh, on his uh, on his tour. No question that you're happy, but I do have to ask privately. I think there is a little bit of worry. Like, did is this peaking too soon? Or what, will you do you worry about that? Who, who is privately worrying about that? Well, I'm not the private conversations, but do you worry? I'm not worried about you. I think I think that. Um, uh, we have, I think, Pierre and the team, the caucus, the party, the riding presidents, I think uh, they are doing a phenomenal job. And I think that our priority is going to be continuing to talk about, you know, paychecks for Canadians. Uh, we're going to be talking about safe streets. We're going to be talking about getting homes built. So kids, millennium, by kids, I mean... 20 and 30 year olds don't have to live in their pa- parents' basement, and that is what you are going to see. We are going to continue to talk about common sense policies. Jenny Byrne, really appreciate your time today. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Jenny Byrne is a senior advisor to Pierre Polyev. We will be right back. I'm Catherine Cullen, and you're listening to The House from CBC Radio. We are here at the Conservative Policy Convention in Quebec City. Since the 90s, the Conservatives have struggled to win big in this province. In about 10 minutes, we're going to take a look at whether that could change with Pierre Polyev. But first, the big event on Friday night was the leader's speech, over an hour long, touching on housing, crime, monetary policy, and the cost of living. Here's some of that speech for the record. It's a really tough time to be the 74-year-old truck driver I met door-knocking in Bowmanville who just got his eviction notice despite always paying his rent on time. Finding another place will cost him $700 extra per month. He doesn't have $700 extra. So his choice now is to go to his full-grown daughter, his little girl, and ask to live in her basement or become homeless. Mr. Trudeau, if you think life is tough for you, you should meet the carpenter I met at a Tim Hortons in the Sioux who lives in a parking lot because he can't afford the rent. He wasn't angry either. But I was angry for him because an economy where the people who build our homes cannot afford to live in them is fundamentally unjust and wrong. Hope is what Canadians need now more than ever. Hope is something that you feel, but it's hard to picture it. So let me paint a picture for you of students laughing and walking down safe streets to class, the distant drumming of hammers driving nails through Canadian lumber into yet another beautiful new Canadian home. Shopkeepers sweeping clean storefronts at the end of another day, waving to seniors heading home with a car full of groceries and change in their pockets. As daylight fades to night, kids are heard pleading for 10 more minutes of street hockey before bed, and then quiet. And a young couple sits on their front porch, soaking in the summer warmth. 
a Canadian flag hanging gently but proudly from the front of their house with a cold drink in one hand and a paycheck in the other. They look into each other's eyes in a way that can only say, the hard work paid off. The sacrifices were worth it because finally we're home. Ladies and gentlemen. To talk about what else was in Polyev's speech and how it might land with people watching across the country, I caught up with a couple of political watchers right after Polyev left the stage. Stephanie Levitz covers federal politics for the Toronto Star, and Joël-Denis Belvance is Parliament Hill Bureau Chief for La Presse. Thank you both so much for joining me. Hello, Catherine. Hi. So, quick first impression, Steph, I'm going to start with you. This was a bigger speech than Pierre Polyev has given in an environment like this since he became leader of the Conservative Party. And what they were trying to do is sort of set out the themes for the next federal election, pack a ton of stuff into what was a very, very lengthy speech for Mr. Polyev and kind of do it a bit all, you know, paint his vision for the country, attack Justin Trudeau, introduce some policy ideas, rally the base, you know, introduce some more to new voters. It was all sorts of things packed into one tiny speech or long uh, speech. Not so tiny. Not yeah. so tiny. <laughs> Joel Denis, beyond the fact that it was a bit of a lengthy speech, quick first take. Well, one theme that it came over and over again was common sense. Gros bon sens in French. We heard it over and over again. And I think this is uh, probably the buzzword that we'll be hearing over the next uh, months leading up to the next federal election, because I think this is the kind of uh, theme that Mr. Poilier wants to use to appeal to voters. What I did find surprising is that before today, Mr. Poilier was not attacking the Bloc Québécois as much as he did in the past. Tonight, uh, well, well, during his speech, he was using Mr. Blanchet as much, if not more, as name than Jagmeet Singh. And to me, so that means that the Conservative Party has bigger hopes than I thought in Quebec for the next election. Okay. We're going to lean in on Quebec in a minute. But Steph, you laid out a laundry list of things that they packed into this speech. I wonder if you can pick one as something significant that came out of this, be it a policy proposal or a line of attack. What do you think is the most important thing we heard? You know, there were things there that you could you could see as, you know, the expression in politics is red meat for the base, little sly jokes. But there wasn't that much of it. And that speaks, again, to this goal and this hope that the party have, and we've certainly seen at the convention the last couple of days, to project this broader vision of the party towards Canadians, not the red meat of the base. It's getting beyond the base, building a new coalition of conservative voters. Peter McKay alluded to that in his own remarks, that the party is in a new place. It's attracting new voters. And so instead of using this speech to fire up loyal conservatives, it was to say we're all the same and all Canadians have a home in the conservative party, although those aren't words that Mr. Polyev himself used exactly. Joël Denis, who was Pierre Polyev speaking to? Well, one thing that I saw was very interesting is that he was talking to ordinary Canadians. In fact, in, he had an interesting line in French saying that we call them ordinary people, but they're not an ordinary. They're extraordinary because they carry the load of the nation on their shoulders by working long hours, the single mother, the electrician, the farmers. Uh, I think this is a strategy that is trying to Modelon of the NDP, if I may say, <laughs> because um, he's appealing to the, the regular folks by also talking about uh, common sense stuff to regular folks. 
that's a strategy that shows that Mr. Poliev is trying to enlarge the coalition in a na- way that we haven't seen in the past. What is so interesting, I think, about that, both this idea of common sense and like ordinary people, it makes me actually think of uh, the middle class and those working hard to join exactly. it, right? Because it's yeah. one of those things yeah. where like, who doesn't think that they have common sense, yeah. right? It's, it's a very aspirational kind of phrase. Yeah, exactly. And so I guess this kind of speech and the convention we've seen over the weekend will force the other political parties to adjust their strategy. Already we've seen that. Mm-hmm. We've had three cabinet ministers coming to this convention, three liberal cabinet ministers in Quebec coming to this convention to react to what is happening here. That shows something is going on in the liberal ranks. And I was surprised I didn't see any NDP MPs as well coming in into trying to slam the conservative over some issues that they feel are not in sync with uh, Canadians. But uh, the Bloc Québécois will have to adjust too. And they have a f- uh, very good lines. Some of the Quebec MPs, the Tory MPs, were saying to me that the, the Bloc Québécois doesn't seem to realize that many people in their ridings own F. 150 mm-hmm. trucks, Big pickups. Trucks. <laughs> yep. And so the kind of speech that Pierre Polyev is making, I think, is trying to lure them into the conservative camp in the regions of Quebec, dominated by the Bloc Québécois. And so the Bloc Québécois will have to be on its guard as well. Steph, let's talk vibes for a minute. Um, what, like, what is the overall feeling, the energy at this uh, convention compared to ones that you've covered in the past? I keep thinking to myself that what is not present at the convention so far um, is tension. There is no tension. This idea of factions of the party competing and, you know, oh, this policy resolution or, oh, and, you know, I think some of that will come in the, in the coming policy debate. But those, that tension will be perhaps we could say an intellectual tension as opposed to factions of the party jockeying for power. Mm-hmm. Different kind of tension, right? Uh, what I see, too, the vibe is people enthusiastic and supportive of a leader in a way that they absolutely were not for Mr. O'Toole. They absolutely were not mm. for Mr. Scheer. Uh, everybody loved Ronna Ambrose in her interim time yeah. as leader, but that was a different vibe altogether. There was nothing at stake. This convention, you know, the party organizers were saying that there was the largest number of registrants here since the party's founding convention, which was in 2005. Wow. And the vibe that I... I've been picking up on is in a way this is a new founding convention that you know Stephen Harper built the party one way coming out of that 2005 convention and now the party is being in some ways rebuilt by Mr. Polyev and you see that with things like the new logo you see that Mm -hmm. um, in choices that they've made about you know there's no buttons at this convention have you noticed that like conventions usually have all this paraphernalia yeah all this hokey, awesome stuff. There's none of that because this is Mr. Polyev's party. Yeah, there were supposed to be some kind of stuff, but they made a mistake while they printed it in French. That's why you didn't see them at the convention. <laughs> they they spelled the word wrong. congrès wrong. Oh, yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> that great lanyard controversy <laughs> yeah. of the 2023 convention. Uh, but but I, I just yeah. pick up on yeah. what uh, um, Stephanie just said. I was talking to a longtime Quebec Tory MP in Quebec, Jacques Gould, not to name him, and he <laughs> said, I feel like I'm at the 2005 convention again that led to the uh, winning election of 2006. And he said, polls are good. We have the momentum. We have to keep it that way, but we have to stay humble. So th- that provokes a couple of questions. One is just why? Is it, is it, do we just chalk it up to polls, Jordani? I think so. And also, I think they see that Pierre Polyev is grabbing attention across the land. Um, that, you know, 
I was talking to a uh, Quebec delegate and he said, people are talking about Pierre Polyev in, in a good way now, in not in a negative way. Uh, they, they feel that, after all, he seems to be a reasonable person. Mm. So that's a change of the political landscape for Mr. Polyev. And that's why I say that uh, the other parties have to take note and change their political strategy accordingly. I'd also argue that, you know, Mr. Harper and then Andrew Scheer and then Aaron O'Toole all tried to do something. Harper managed to do it. Scheer didn't. O'Toole didn't. Polyev has. And that is to find the issues that they all agree upon and talk only about those ones. And that strength of message discipline, that constant reinforcement of we are only going to talk about the economy, affordability, housing, the economy, those are things that everyone can get behind right now. They're not divisive. And one more asset I would say that Mr. Poliev has, he can talk with emotions. Mm. Somebody was mentioning that we had, our three previous leaders were robots. Now we have a real human in charge. <laughs> Uh, now, listen, I do want to go back to those. Um, we've talked about emotion. I want to turn back to policy for just a minute, Steph. I mean, you're saying no tension here. Do you think any of the policy resolutions? We talked earlier on the show with Jenny Byrne about um, the one around um, surgeries, for instance, for minors who are experiencing gender dysphoria. Do any of these have potential to mix things up, be it amongst conservative delegates or beyond, sort of as the conservative party tries to reach out to a broader swath of Canadians? If we, if we want to again cast back to a previous conservative convention, we can talk about the 2021 virtual convention with Aaron O'Toole, right. where party delegates were attempting to enshrine the language climate change is real into their policy document. Um, th those specific words, that resolution was voted down. And what happened? You get literally the last two years of liberals using that exact moment to accuse the party of being climate change deniers. They refuse to acknowledge climate change is real. I mean, that's political torquing of, of what happened. So therein lies the risk. Mm -hmm. You know, one comment, the risk might not be in the policy as much as it is as what is said on from the debate floor, mm -hmm. the language around these policies. I think that these policies that are going to be debated They are topics that all of Canadian society is grappling with right now in terms of how to address them, how to deal with them, how to make sense of them, how to debate them, how to discuss them, what language. That's valid. I think right. all of us are having that debate, you know. But when the language has the risk of veering into anti-LGBTQ rights territory, as a for example, then that easily gets seized and turned into a clip that seeks to discredit the entirety of the party, notwithstanding the fact that Mr. Polyev can, you know, proclaim his support for LGBTQ rights, which he does, yep. in the same way that, you know, with the climate change one, Aaron O'Toole, after that resolution had failed, gave a speech that said, climate change is real and we must take it seriously. It didn't matter because there was still the clip about it, climate change not being real. Joel Denis, you talked about the energy being really good right now. The conservatives, I'm sure, would love to maintain that right up until the next election. Yeah. That could be two years away. I'd like to ask you both quickly in closing, What is the biggest challenge the Conservatives have if they want to maintain what's happening right now? Maintaining that lead will be a huge challenge, as you mentioned, and that's, I think, the critical one. Uh, and, and I guess <laughs> the challenge will be to make sure that Mr. Trudeau does not have a walk in the snow in February and decide not to run in the next election because they would be losing their best asset. Justin Trudeau right now is one of the best assets of the Conservative Party. Steph? 
The unknown is the biggest challenge for the conservatives right now. You know, Mr. Polyev and his economic message is of the moment. Let's recall, he's not saying anything materially different than he's said for 20 years, but the economic conditions of the country, the uncertainty so many people are facing, the potential for a coming mortgage crisis, these all speak to Polyev's economic message. But what if, if I can take a what if, for example, we walk into you know a major climate change emergency like we've seen with forest fires and smoke and the party has no answer that appeals to Canadians to believe that conservatives take climate change seriously just to go back to that point mm -hmm. that's an unknown that torpedoes their support world events pandemics these are things that Mr. Polyev in his disciplined focus you have to wonder how will he handle the business of the unknown, of the surprising, of the mm. things he's going to need to react to as much as he wants to stay on his discipline. If he wants to be prime minister, Canadians are going to want to hear him on other things and how he responds to those other things could shift the needle. Great conversation. Thank you both so much for your time today. Thanks, Catherine. Thank you, Catherine. Stephanie Levitz and Joël-Denis Bellevance. Now, as we mentioned, this convention is being held in Quebec City, the capital of a province that has been a real challenge for the Conservative Party of Canada. The fact of the matter is, if you took Quebec out of Canada, and hopefully that would never happen, but if you did, Conservatives would win almost every single election. Uh, if you look at how well we do in English Canada, Quebec is a uh, almost a wasteland for us, or has been for many elections. We win very small percentage of seats. There's 78 seats in that province, and when we're only contesting for five or ten of them, it's hard to form government. That is Fred DeLore, the last Conservative to run a national election campaign against Justin Trudeau. And DeLore knows when you look at the electoral math, the province of Quebec is a big deal. Under the current federal map, it has nearly a quarter of the seats. With Polyev pulling in big support in national polls, we wondered, does Pierre Polyev need Quebec to become prime minister? Quebec has always been difficult for the Conservatives since the end of the Mulroney era in the early 90s. Holster Christian Bork is vice president with Leger Marketing. He notes that going into the 2006 election, the Conservatives had no seats in Quebec and managed to win 10. The stage was set for the party to win big in Quebec the next election, he says, at the expense of the Bloc Québécois. But one thing that really hurt the Conservatives going into 2008 was the move to cut millions of dollars in arts and culture programs. The start of that election campaign, you know, cultural cuts, as they were called back then, meant the end of, of conservative support in the, in the province, and then the bloc were back. It, it sort of revived the bloc vote, and it has always been very difficult to crack that 20%, 22% popular support for the conservatives. Uh, the reason that sort of eludes uh, Monsieur Poilier for now is the strength of the bloc Québécois of Vive François Blanchet. I will still say to this day, we're genuinely not serious cuts in culture, but we lost the communications battle. Uh, and in politics, the reality is that perception is reality. Well, over a decade later, and you can tell the culture cuts conversation still smarts a little for Dimitri Soudis. He was Stephen Harper's director of communications when Harper was prime minister, but Soudis was also there for the early days, driving around Quebec in a minibus with then-opposition leader Stephen Harper, trying to drum up support. I remember times where, you know, we were going to events that we were planning and only 10 people were waiting for us. Soudis believes the Reform Party roots of both Harper and the Conservative Party itself made the CPC a tough sell in some parts of the province. Stephen Harper 
literally went and shook one hand at a time, but we did it. We did it strategically. We, we spent very little time in Montreal. We were primarily in Quebec City, the south shore of Quebec City, and, and the Beauce, and just kept going back over and over and over again. I, I can tell you, Catherine, that he went back to Quebec City during Carnival so many times that he and Bonhomme were on a first-name basis. While Harper got buddy-buddy with Bonhomme, Delory tried something different when he ran Aaron O'Toole's campaign. Les conservateurs avons un engagement clair pour la nation québécoise avec mon contrat. We really kind of split the campaign in half. We had a national campaign team uh, that was focused on the other nine provinces and territories, and then we had a separate campaign team for Quebec. I mean, there's different factors that go into every campaign, and what are the top issues? What's the top issue in uh, in Alberta or Ontario may be different than Quebec. So you got to find the right messages that work for the the people there. And we got to look at our voter coalition as well. If you look at conservatives in Quebec, the blue nationalists, those Quebec nationalists, tend to be more favorable or, or potential uh, to vote conservative. So you have to appeal to them on their terms. At the time, Quebec's popular premier, François Legault, said he believed O'Toole would give the province more powers in immigration and health care money with no strings attached. Legault was so pleased, he suggested to Quebecers that he was leaning towards a minority conservative government. So where did that endorsement and all of that strategy get O'Toole? Nowhere, actually. He didn't win a single additional seat in the province. You may notice Polyev isn't making the same kinds of appeals to Quebec nationalists. His advisors say that's unlikely to change. Delory says he understands the logic of Polyev's approach. Right now, we're not seeing any signs that he is going to be targeting any specific messaging to Quebec. It feels like he is going with one unified message across the board in every region, and it seems to be working for him. Will it work in the next election, though? Um, right now, if inflation and housing crisis are the main issues, then he should just be pounding on those. But if things change, then Quebecers and, and British Columbians and Nova Scotians are going to want to hear different things potentially to their regions and how they affect them. And will Mr. Polyev be able to come up with those more regionalized messages? We'll have to wait and see. Soudis argues Polyev has some advantages over his predecessors, notably the last conservative who won government. So the two things that Pierre Poilievre has that Stephen Harper did not have is, number one, his last name. Poilievre is a francophone last name. So that's competitive advantage number one over Stephen Harper. Number two, Pierre Poilievre is married to a Quebecer, and, and she can be a pretty, pretty uh, deadly asset in, in, in a political perspective, of course, should the Conservatives choose to utilize her. Pour ses enfants, c'est tout simplement papa. And they are utilizing her. In this ad for Pierre Polyev, his wife Anaïda makes a point of describing herself as Québécoise. Une Québécoise guidée par le gros bon sang qui a fait du Canada son chez soi. The other thing that he, he does better than what Stephen Harper did is his French. He's able to articulate and connect because remember um, what I said at least, and that's my view, uh, is that Quebecers vote with their heart. Um, so he has all the ingredients to win more than 10 seats in the province of Quebec. Soudis' optimism is countered by the fact that conservative poll numbers in Quebec still aren't moving. And that brings us back to our original question. Does Pierre Polyev need Quebec to win? 
Well, mathematically, no, because of the strength out west and in the prairies for the Conservatives. And right now, for the first time over since he became leader of the Conservatives, he's actually showing that he's in seat gain territory in uh, Ontario. The problem with Quebec is the difference between a minority conservative government and a majority go uh, uh, conservative government. If they were able to garner 15 to 20 seats or 25 seats in the province of Quebec, then the likelihood of a majority becomes actually real. But Fred Delory says there are exceptions. Stephen Harper won his majority with just five Quebec seats. I would still be, if I was running the campaign this time, I'd still be focusing hard on trying to make a breakthrough there and, and win seats. But history tells us that we don't always have to do that to win. If you go back to 2011, last time the Conservatives won a majority government or an election at all, we did it without Quebec, and I sense the, the current leadership there is looking at it that way. big news this week, there is finally going to be a public inquiry into foreign interference. On Thursday, the government announced Quebec Court of Appeal Judge Marie-José Hugues will lead the inquiry. The final results are due by December 2024. After so many concerns about foreign meddling in Canada's elections, will this get results? Before I headed to Quebec City, I sat down with Jia Wong, Deputy Director of the China Institute at the University of Alberta, and Dick Fadden. He's the former head of CSIS and was National Security Advisor for both Prime Minister Harper and Prime Minister Trudeau. I started by asking Fadden if he had any burning questions that he wanted answered by this inquiry. In an odd sort of way, no, because I think it's more than just how it affects elections. Foreign interference in our democratic process goes well beyond elections. It, it affects political parties as they operate all the time. It affects how they deal with the public all the time, not just through electronic media, but through the use of cash, through the use of, of coercion and whatnot. So I think the first thing that the commissioner could usefully do is give us a really good inventory of the whole range of possible activities affecting our democratic process and not be overly limited to elections. Justice Ugg doesn't have a background in national security. That's not the kind of law she has practiced. What do you make of that? Well, uh, I think the good news is that she brings no predisposed view on this issue, and I think that's important. I don't think national security is particularly magical, but it is a rather special world. So I think, A, she's going to have to be a fast study to figure all this out. And secondly, she'll have to surround herself, I think, with some counselors, some advisors who know this field. As I think you know, I would have preferred a commission of three people, a judge, somebody who knows something about electoral processes, and somebody who knows something about national security. They've decided not to do that. But if she proceeds on the assumption that she knows all things about everything on her own without getting very good advice through the system, I think there will be a challenge there. This goes beyond China to include Russia, other foreign states, and non-state actors. What is the significance of having a scope that broad? I think it is 
important at this point to really examine uh, how much foreign interference has been at play and uh, what are the Canadian actors and uh, individuals, organizations, and, and how they're, they're being influenced, especially for those uh, tools that are used that are uh, not very obvious, uh, um, that could be secretive or it could be something that is uh, very skillfully applied without you even knowing and certain disinformation campaign, for example, really to get a better understanding um, of the scope. Um, and perhaps also we can learn a few things and, and also share our experience with our allies and other countries and other democracies. What piece of that equation, Dick Fadden, China, Russia, other foreign states, non-state actors, what interests you the most? Well, I think it's what China has been up to because uh, they have been the greater threat over the course of the last little while. But I think we're going to make a mistake if we overly focus on China. And if I can just sort of pursue that a little bit, I understand that this commission has been set up to deal with foreign interference on our electoral process. But I think we should not forget that there is foreign interference for a range of other reasons, uh, control of the diaspora, you know, pursuing uh, policy and public objectives of China and other countries. So I hope that if the commissioner finds anything about these sorts of things, that she will feel herself enabled to report on them. I think it's a serious mistake to let ourselves think that the only kind of foreign interference that this country and our allies have to deal with is restricted to that concerning electoral process. It's much broader than that. You say uh, that she would feel enabled, and that's also language we've heard from the government, from Minister Dominic LeBlanc. What do you think decides whether or not a commissioner does feel able to pursue those kinds of things? I think in the end it's going to be how she views her commission. Uh, she's totally independent. It would be entirely inappropriate for anybody to tell her what to do. Uh, she's a distinguished jurist. She can read her commission as well as anybody else. I also think that there's an assumption in the law that if you're tasked to do something directly and you encounter something related to it that you feel needs to be reported, you're entitled to do that. So it wasn't put in her commission. But as I said, I really do think foreign interference is more than the one that this commission talks about. And I would be very surprised if the various and sundry people she talks to don't talk about these other elements as well. Xiaowang, I want to ask you what you think this public inquiry, we don't know precisely when it's going to start, but as it begins, what it might mean for Canada-China relations and whether it's likely to spark further problems. Uh, My sense is this current announcement may not spur a very dramatic response from the Chinese government. If we look at in May when the Chinese diplomat was expelled from the Toronto uh, Consul General's office and China's response was very measured. China picked someone of almost the exact uh, portfolio, like exact match, mm-hmm. and things didn't escalate from there. So if we can use that as a reference point, I don't expect a very dramatic uh, response from China. And uh, we'll have to see once, say, the, the final report comes out and uh, maybe there will be uh, recommendations for implementation of certain recommendations from this uh, report, and then we'll see how China will respond then. I just wanted to say, I hope my, my fellow panelist is correct, but I think it's the cumulative effect that will determine whether China or not will react. And I think the expulsion of the consul, this activity, things that the government is saying, uh, may well cause China to recognize we're not a superpower, uh, they're irritated with us, and I agree that if they do something, it'll be on the economic side, but the economic side tends to hurt. 
I do want to ask you both about some of the questions around timing here before we wrap up. So, Dick Fadden, the commissioner's work is supposed to wrap up by the end of next year. Does that timeline allow for meaningful change before the next election in terms of protecting ourselves? I'm not sure it does, unless the government sort of says there are a variety of things that we can do in parallel. For example, you don't need the commissioner's report to decide you need a foreign registry. You don't need the commissioner's report to do some things to fix problems with CSIS. You don't need the commissioner's report to make intelligence more broadly available. You don't need the commissioner to publicize these issues more. But if the government decides that they ain't going to do nothing until the commissioner reports, then I think it will be too late, particularly because none of us here know when the next election will be. Xiaowang, as all of this is going on, diaspora communities are still being targeted. Is this action fast enough for them? Of course, there will be um, individuals, there will be members of the community who would like to uh, get to the bottom of this issue and and to see the final result. But there are concerns among community members that uh, the whole uh, political interference allegation, of course, now the uh, public inquiry will have some impact or put almost like a target on the members of the Chinese community because Many are feeling already being pressured or they are feeling that already they're being targeted unfairly just because they are Chinese or they look Chinese and they speak the language. They still have connections and ties and naturally with China. So um, this is an issue that needs to be tackled. I think the voices from the Chinese diaspora community needs to be heard. Is there something that can be done during this process that would ensure that? Well, I think... Hopefully, members of the Chinese diaspora will be given the chance to offer their perspectives and their says and maybe their recommendations in terms of how we first detect these interference and how we can, you know, battle this interference. Perhaps there's even more importantly, need to be a education campaign. So we need to perhaps educate uh, our public to how to better defend ourselves uh, against disinformation, against these acts that try to manipulate our mind and trying to change our mind to, you know, vote one way or another. Okay, Dick, I know you want to get in there. Just to add to what was said, this is not just a matter for the federal government. It's a matter for civil society, for the provinces, for municipalities, for civil society generally. The more we talk about this, the better off we're going to be. And the governments have to accept that when they have a complaint from the diaspora, they've got to do something about it. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Thank you both so much for your insights today. My pleasure. Thank you. I was talking to Dick Fadden and Zha Wang earlier this week. That is it for us here at the Conservative Party Convention in Quebec City. Our crew on the house is Kristen Everson, Emma Godmere, Christian Poslang, and our senior producer is Jennifer Chevalier. I'm Catherine Cullen. Thank you so much for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.